The Fourth Wall, Episode 6, Drew Boughton. You're listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you behind the screen or the page and brings you into our conversations with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Michael R., and I'm the podcast editor here at Den of Geek, and today we're talking to Drew Boughton, the production designer of Amazon's The Man in the High Castle, who was just nominated for an Art Directors Guild Award for this past season, and also received Emmy nominations for Outstanding Production Design on The Man in the High Castle's first two seasons. And Drew joined us to talk about his approach in designing this dystopian world Instead of building the optimistic mid-century America that was prevented, he brings us a stilted fascist version while keeping the environment familiar enough to properly hold up the mirror to our present-day society. The Man in the High Castle recently wrapped on its season four for filming, and it should be coming in the fall, according to the latest trailer. So take a listen to our interview with production designer Drew Boughton about how he designed the vision for the show. Hi, Drew. Hey, how you doing? I'm great. I'm so glad you were able to join me. I had the um, honor of meeting you on the set of The Man in the High Castle back in 2017. And uh, it was a crazy day, actually. It was when we were they were filming the New York um, speech with uh, Himmler and Smith. So <laughs> it was pretty crazy. <laughs> oh, right. That was nuts. Yeah, in a giant parking lot. Right. <laughs> so uh, first of all, Talk about what a production designer does, because it's more than just putting together those initial drawings. How far into the actual building of the set and the set decoration does your job go? So the job goes all the way up and including shooting. So in addition to to just the initial creation of uh, drawings and concepts uh, in consultation with the directors, then there is supervising the making of construction drawings in exact finishes and colors and fabric selections for for, for all these various things. And working with uh, set set decorating, and uh, we have an amazing set decorating team, working with them to, to sort of pick the exact colors that are going to work the best for all the fabrics, for all the you know various things. And so... And and in consultation with wardrobe to make sure that whatever colors we're using are not the identical colors to their what they're using and so forth. So the uh, the process continues, you know, all, all the way up to the time of uh, the cameras rolling. Now, the Man in the High Castle takes place in the 1960s in an alternate version of history. So the architectural elements and even the fashion is kind of stuck in the more conservative 40s and 50s feel. What elements did you? Uh, regardless of that fact, extrapolate forward from that time? And is there anything that we might recognize from the 60s, like plastic or rounded corners or crazy wallpaper or something like that? Um, absolutely. We uh, to sort of try to imagine what this might be like. We looked at 1960s uh, Eastern Bloc Soviet countries in that era of the 60s and compared the modernism of those sort of rigid totalitarian states to the modernism that, of course, we were experiencing in the West. And um, one, of the, one of the things that was very noticeable in, in looking at the photographs of those places is that, you know, people living under totalitarianism are much more apt to be conformist and to not want to stick out in the crowd and to not choose strong colors for 
their clothing or their cars or their houses because you know the rigidity of the state diminishes the individual and in- individual freedom is is not something that that you want to express because it can get you in, in a gulag so in researching these things we looked at the balance of mixing that sort of extreme grayness and drabness and um, noticeably similar automobiles and noticeably similar sort of state-sponsored look for everything with our own sort of American history. And we figured out which things we were going to subtract and take away. And one of the jobs that Frank Spotnitz, our uh, creator and showrunner at the time, was very interested in was to to strike a balance between a familiar American 60s and this alternative version so that it was it was familiar deliberately to be more upsetting and more uh, to cut closer to the idea of holding up a mirror to how easy it would be for America to drift towards fascism. And um, mm-hmm. it was a very uh, important message. Well, now that being said, was there a little bit more freedom in the design of the Pacific States versus the Nazi regime, just because of the little bit more open cultural things going on over there? Yes. The, um, yeah, historically the Nazis were very much brand oriented in the overall design of the entire ideology and also just the look of every single thing that, that was being done. And, um, Imperial Japan was, was less so. So there was, there was much more of a, uh, a kind of a coordinated effort uh, under the Nazis to uh, brand everything. So in our world, in reflecting th- those ideas, having progressed 17 years, the occupation of the San Francisco areas is less of a central focus for Imperial Japan than the Nazis and their occupation of the other part of the uh, continent. And also in keeping the the Imperial Japanese were more tolerant of people of different cultures. And so in our story, there are people of different cultures who are uh, allowed to live and exist. And uh, in that way, we created that world to be a little more open, a little more flexible, but still essentially a totalitarian um, and fascist world. Now, you were nominated for an Emmy twice for your work in The Man in the High Castle and for an Art Directors Guild Award this year. Is this show unique in allowing you to make production design in some ways noticeable both to viewers and to awards committees because of the chance to maybe communicate more thematically than other shows might be able to? I think that's true. I think in certain ways the, you know, I, I've always been a fan of any any uh, Philip K. Dick material Minority Report and Blade Runner are sort of the two most notable examples in terms of production design historically. And uh, there's something about the author's work that has it has a kind of baked in uh, visual juxtaposition in the very writing of the material that sets up these kinds of um, large visual ideas. And, you know, if you are fortunate enough, as as I am, to come in contact with that material and be allowed to pursue it, you're kind of like, you're kind of way ahead in terms of visual opportunity because the material itself is demanding it. So it's, it's easier for me to, to find ways to, uh, to stand out from the crowd of, of other material because the source material is intrinsically 
visually fascinating, just either the political nature of it or by the historical contextual nature of it. It's, a, it's sort of a visual goldmine no matter what. Now, what else informs the set design besides, because obviously you're correct, I'm thinking of Blade Runner, especially where Philip K. Dick's stuff uh, informs it, but what else informs your set design, maybe from the character standpoint or something else that would be present on other shows, but just happens to be equally rich on this show? I'm not quite sure. That's a, it's sort of a hard question. I, I feel like there's there are things that are in common with other shows. For example, there are there are a lot of shows that have highly detailed period environments, and we we do that. And there are a lot of shows that have highly detailed 1960s period environments, and and we do that. Our unique opportunity is that we take a, the highly detailed 60s environment and and morph it and change it in ways that other shows are not in the position to do because the the key and core mission is to bring up those familiar and exacting things from the 1960s, not that sort of twisted alternative version of the 1960s. And I think that's like a key part of the sandbox that we play in is we have many of the same objects, furniture, automobiles, and, and wardrobe choices. And then the way we limit those and the way we take things out and the way that we um, accentuate other things is is sort of the the guitar that we play, right? You know, everybody chooses a different guitar and we choose this guitar in this certain way. And, uh, that, that's what we, that's what we work with. I guess what I was referring to, and let me just give you an example from one of my other questions here with the Smith penthouse in New York, for example, did you have to create a sense of discomfort for John and Helen through your set design although they might not have necessarily made so many of their own choices in the decorating of their apartment. But, you know, does set design come into character at all? Character development? Absolutely. Uh, thank you. That, that, that I, I'm following you. I, the way we envisioned that space is that now that he was being promoted, essentially you, you kind of lose control of your life as you get promoted up the food chain. And, when you go into places like the White House or other places where, you know, it's no longer just your taste. You you are now part of the state's taste in deciding, you know, what your formal residence is going to be like. And so you begin to lose your individuality and, and you're, you just become part of the system. And so the, the Smith's apartment is very much that kind of idea and that they've gone from a modest sort of middle class uh, home to this quasi-public grand penthouse, you know, which is intended to be able to function as both a private residence and also an official space for, for events and for, you know, important hosting. And in that moment of transition is also a moment of reinforcing the power of the state and the propaganda of the state and the rigidity of the state. And so the, the set is deliberately intentionally designed to feature those aspects. And in terms of its rectilinearity, which is a very Germanic look uh, from the period in, uh, uh, in, in which you can see in the, the existing buildings in Berlin even today that are left over from that era, you can see this very rectilinear certitude in architectural form. And in our case, we we ran with that. We found a, uh, an exterior building which was very serious and sober and rectilinear. And we put our set that we built, we built a set from scratch that would 
thematically makes sense being in, in that kind of building. And then put some cooler, uh, colder qualities of color and wallpapers and finishes into what is an interior environment so that it, it may seem grand, but it's not really comfortable. And uh, yeah, that's right. I spent a lot of time working out the colors of the bedroom in particular with, with that objective in mind that their marriage is in trouble and um, they're in this bedroom that has this kind of strange quality, this strange mid-century Baroque, but sad kind of cold wallpaper, weird kind of space. And, you know, that was all very intentional. It's basically, it's a, it's a sad environment, even though it's wealthy. So, you know, with, with this promotion, things are not really getting better. They may be getting more expensive, but they're not really getting better. Yeah, that that was one of the first times when I, I felt like, this looks 60s. I feel like I'm in Mad Men a little bit, but not quite. So that that's why I asked that earlier question about 60s elements sneaking in. But the Berlin example really makes a lot of sense. So that puts my finger on it a little bit better. But one of the things that um, I mentioned that I was able to be on the set for season three and saw a, a very chilling scene that took place. It was mostly green screen, of course, but it was supposed to take place in uh, Times Square of New York City. Were there ever situations for you as the set designer that sent chills down your spine the way it did for me that day when you saw some of your visions brought to life? Uh, yes, there there are a couple specific examples. Um, one was when um, we were in Berlin and we were preparing to, um, this was at the end of season one, we were preparing to put uh, swastika flags up in Berlin around the victory column, which is an important landmark in the center of the Tiergarten Park. And uh, it's a very, very sensitive issue everywhere in the world. It's an especially sensitive issue uh, in Germany. And um, you can only do that in Germany, uh, unlike in the United States. You can only do that in Germany if it's for purposes of uh, filming uh, and, un and under very, very st strict control. In the United States, unfortunately, we have the freedom of expression in, in so many important and good ways, and sometimes people misuse that. And so we have uh, unfortunate examples of people carry that flag openly in protests and uh, in parades that, uh, you know, of their hateful ideology. Uh, in Germany, you can't do that. So when we were uh, shooting in Berlin, it was at the time that the large influx of Syrian refugees had just been cleared to come into the country. And those initial groups of people were going to go to stay at a place right near where the set was shooting. And their buses were going to drive directly past our set. Oh, no. <laughs> and, Yes, and, and so that would be the welcoming image for refugees uh, fleeing oppression. And, uh, of course, it, it was decided that, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. And so all, all those uh, flags came down and, and were done digitally, which was absolutely fine with, uh, with us because, uh, you know, the last thing we want to do is offend anybody. The purpose of the show is not to, uh, not to offend. It is to try to show... Unfortunately, as we've seen in the last couple of years, how easy it is for even America to uh, be attracted to fascism. And sadly, we uh, are all living through what that looks like right now. 
Yeah, I recall the the Charlottesville marches that happened just a year before we visited the set, and that was on everyone's mind at the time. So, yeah, very chilling. What what other elements of the past three seasons of The Man in the High Castle were you particularly proud of or found that when a set was built, it maybe even exceeded your expectations? I think that we're very proud of the Denver uh, Grand Palace um, set, which is is in season three, and it features a lot of archways and a lot of gold and a lot of textured surfaces and and a lot of aged American things. And the part of the show that I'm attracted to is the neutral zone, is the resistance. You know, those those are the worlds where I'm happy. You know, I, I enjoy designing the other areas, but I'm not attracted to hanging out in them. <laughs> For example, I I love I love visiting the Smith set. But it doesn't. I don't really want to sit down. <laughs> but when I go when I go to the to the Denver Palace Bar, I want to sit down, right? Because the iconography and the, and the symbolism that are contained in each space are potent. And even though it's a it's a fake set and it's in a, a story, the iconography that is in those sets is offensive, and, and it's offensive to be in just casually. And so it's, you know, I, I do not, I don't find it comfortable, right? I'm, I'm at ease and I'm comfortable when I'm sitting in a rusty pickup truck, <laughs> you know, where Julianne and Wyatt might be hanging out, you know, the, those are the places that I, that I want to be. So, I, I, you know, I'm really very, very proud of some of our exterior dresses for those kinds of parts of the neutral zone and that, and that set for Denver. And I was very excited by the tunnel, the, uh, the Denimewalt tunnel mostly because of its minimalism and sculptural uh, aspects and because of its transformational nature. The object itself is just, it's like a big minimalist sculpture. It's a, it's a large oval shape in concrete leading to light. And the, the simplicity of that design idea, I think, is one of the most successful things that we've done in its just its simplicity. And the idea that through that space is an alternative version of yourself, a better version of yourself. And that idea and that conceptual thematic space is something I'm, I'm very attracted to. And, and so I've, I've really been very proud of that. Now, so what stage are you in for season four? Are, do you actually have some things going, even if it's just the initial sketches or, or how far in are you with that? We are uh, we're shooting episode uh, eight of ten. Oh, so we okay. are we are close. We're we're well into it, and um, you know we've we've made some new things, and uh, but uh, fans of the show can see, <laughs> you know, when when it all gets released, and I, and I hope that everybody will uh, will tune in and enjoy them. So um, yeah, we have we have more stuff. More stuff is coming. All right. Well, I'm very much looking forward to it. Thanks so much for talking to us today, Drew. Thank you very much. A real pleasure. Thank you. All right. That was a great insight into the different areas of the dystopian world in The Man in the High Castle, including the Pacific States, the Greater Nazi Reich, and, of course, Drew's favorite, the Neutral Zone. And so that was a lot of fun to see what he thought about the different areas that he designed the look of. But that's going to wrap things up for this episode. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast when we'll break through the fourth wall once again to talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. 
My name is Michael R. And you can follow me at Mike Sci-Fi. Find more content at denofgeek.com. And thanks for listening. Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall.